0: Now let's turn our attention to the scriptures, Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet say to daughter zion see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey the disciples went and did as jesus had instructed them they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for jesus to sit on a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. I am almost certain that we have looked at this passage before. We must have at some point in time because Every spring, we think about these events, this account, as we mark Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, of course, being the first day of what many followers of Jesus around the world call Holy Week. In the life of the Lord here, as we come to this passage, we are five days away from the crucifixion and seven days away from the resurrection. There are some scholars who say that the Gospels are Uh, long, detailed crucifixion stories with long introductions. You kind of see that in Matthew. So we've been through 20 chapters in the last several months of Matthew, and those 20 chapters have covered 33 or so years of the Lord's life. And now we have eight more chapters, eight chapters devoted to one week. So Matthew really slows down our focus. It's in, in, in essence as if Everything that's come before so far in Matthew is there to help us understand the true significance of what's going to happen during this week. That, That information is all there so that we know who the one being crucified is. The key factor in this passage, I don't know if you noted this as we were reading this, the key factor here in understanding this passage is contrast. The contrast between the heroes that the jew the hero that the jews expected and the deliverer that god sent there's a difference and that's what you're supposed to note as you read this passage james said that scripture is a mirror maybe if we take this passage and hold it up to us like a mirror it might help us to think not just about this scene but about think about in our own lives the contrast between what we want and what we actually need, what we want, or what we think we need, and what God actually knows that we need. 25 years ago, we were friends with a couple that was raising a little girl. She was a toddler, two and a half or three, and her name was Quinn, and Quinn was a beautiful little child, cherubic in her appearance, and one day her mother found her going through her... having found in her mother's purse lip gloss, and Quinn took the lip gloss and put it all over her face. And her mother took the lip gloss away and said, "'Oh no, Quinn, this, this is not for you. Uh, this, "'This is n- no lip gloss for you.' "'And Quinn said to her mother, "'But I need it with all the earnestness "'that a two-and-a-half-year-old can muster. muster I, "'I need it.'" Now you and I know that no two-and-a-half-year-old needs lip gloss, but uh, this is indicate. actually, that was the line that she would use a lot when her parents would redirect her away from things in the house that were not for her, but I need it. I need it. Don't you hear in that the confusion that all of us have, not just two and a half year olds, but all of us have between the things that we want and the things that we need? When you put it in biblical terms, there's a contrast in the Bible between your desires and between what God has promised. And maturity, part of maturity, is that you're able to actually tell the difference between the things that you think you need and the things that you actually need. This passage functions at many, many levels. One of them is the contrast between what the people want and what God supplies. And that's what I want to think about this morning. We're going to talk about this contrast. First, we're going to think about the king the people wanted, and then in a minute, we're gonna talk, a few minutes, we're gonna talk about the savior that God supplied. But let's start by thinking about the king that the people wanted here. I want you to imagine for just a moment, this would be a good technique actually to study any passage of the scripture, but I want you to think for a minute, come to this passage and imagine yourself someone who doesn't know very much about the Bible and doesn't know very much about Jesus. What sort of questions would you have if you are reading this passage and, and first coming across it. Now, many of you in the room have read it dozens of times. Maybe some of you are in, you don't have to imagine very much. You, you're, you're in that group. You're wondering what in the world is going on. What kind of questions would you ask? Again, that'd be a good technique for studying any paragraph, make a list. What, if, I, if I had to explain this to someone who'd never read it before, what sort of things would I have to tell them? Well, the first, thing, the first question on my list is, how did Jesus know about the donkey and her colt? How did he know about the donkey? He gives instructions to disciples, go, there's gonna be a donkey, right? When you get into the next town, get it and bring it. How did he know that? That's a good question. Actually, the first question, at least in, in the passages it goes, might be a, a second order question. So. so Uh, you make, you you know, whenever you do anything, you make your first list of questions, and then if you go back, oh, I got got some more questions. Here's one of those go back more questions. Where in the world is Bethphage? What? And, And what's he talking about the Mount of Olives for here? Now, I know that all of you in this room are much too smart to ever buy a Bible that doesn't have maps. So in the back of your Bible, I'm sure there are maps, maybe one that looks something like this one. Maybe not exactly like that one, but this one will do. Here's a map, pink and yellow Jerusalem there, and there's the border of Jerusalem on the left side of the screen. And off on the right, or actually kind of in the middle there, is the Mount of Olives. You see that in capital letters. And then there's Bethphage. We don't really know if where Bethphage is. That's a pretty good guess. If I had my way with this map, I would have put the words Mount of Olives going from north to south instead of the way they are. Because the Mount of Olives is on a mountain, on a ridge, that's right to the east of Jerusalem. So there's the Mount of Olives, this mountain, and then below, uh, under, uh, down the mountain is what the Kidron Valley. That's called the Kidron Valley. And then the city of Jerusalem. And Bethphage is on the other side of the Mount of Olives. Now, why, why does that matter? Because... Jesus is very close to Jerusalem. He's right on the edge of Jerusalem. In fact, Bethphage is kind of the outer, they didn't use this term back then, suburbs of Jerusalem. It was, it was the farthest that you could get from Jerusalem and still be considered in the, here's the word they use in Texas, the Jerusalem Metroplex. Okay, Bethphage kind of functions a little bit like Neffsville does or Bowsman to Lancaster city. If you ask the people who live in Neffsville or Bowsman, they think they live in a whole nother galaxy from Lancaster city. You say to them, do you live in Lancaster? Oh no, 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 I live in Bowsman. I live in Neffsville. They think they, everybody else in the whole world knows that they live in Lancaster city, but they think they live somewhere else. That's kind of how Bethphage is right on the edge of Jerusalem. And, and the people who have been traveling with Jesus know where he is and know where he's going next. He's going to Jerusalem, and he's very close. Now, some of you are worried that I forgot about the donkey. I did not forget about the donkey. In fact, I have a picture that one of the disciples took of the donkey and her colt. So there they are right before uh, he picked, they picked them up. How did Jesus know about the donkey and her colt? Matthew doesn't make it explicit. Um, A couple possibilities come to mind. One, perhaps this is an example of miraculous knowledge. The Lord at times in the Gospels has miraculous knowledge and exhibits miraculous knowledge. Perhaps that's it. It's possible that Jesus made a plan in advance with with the the owner of this donkey and her colt. It's possible. Uh, Matthew chapter 26, we'll come to this in a few weeks. In Matthew 26, Jesus made prior arrangements to celebrate the Passover in a specific location with someone. Maybe unbeknownst to us, unrecorded by any of the gospels, Jesus had made prior arrangements for the donkey. That's that's possible. It's interesting, this phrase. If he'd made prior arrangements, one wonders this phrase, the Lord needs them. One wonder, is that the code? The Lord needs them, maybe. It's an ambiguous phrase, the Lord. When you use the word the Lord, is would a passerby seeing the disciples, apparently stealing this donkey and her colt, would would, when he when the disciples say the Lord needs them, would they think about the owner of the donkey? Well, I'm here getting the donkey and her colt on behalf of the owner, because the Lord, the master of the donkey, needs them, maybe. Or, this wouldn't surprise me, Matthew, the Gospel writer, emphasizes to us the Lordship of Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And is this a reminder from Matthew that the Lord Jesus has the right to everything and anything that he places his fingers upon? In your life, you as a follower of Jesus, the Lord has the right to say, You, this, this part of your life, I'm going to use this now for my purposes. Some of you, you're having a little bit of a wrestling match with the Lord Jesus over something that he has said this in your life. I'm going to use this for my purposes. The Lord needs them. So uh, that may be how, how he knew about the donkey. I have another question I might ask. What's the big deal about the donkey? What's the big deal about the donkey? Uh, Jesus, as far as we know, walked almost everywhere he went when he lived. He took a few boat rides. Most of the time in the Gospels, there's not very much attention paid to how Jesus got around. There was that walking on the water thing and there was that storm that he was in on a boat. I understand that the Bible makes an appropriate uh, celebration of that fact. But most of the time, Jesus traveled and We don't know anything about it except here we slow down so much to think about the donkey. Why? Well, verses four and five tell us this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Do you recognize the phrase? Some of you who've been around long enough might recognize this phrase. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. You should recognize that from a long time ago when we read the first couple chapters of Matthew, because Matthew uses that phrase a lot in the first few chapters. This happened to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And and what Matthew is doing is he's saying, Jesus fits the pattern of the prophecies made in the Hebrew scriptures. We'll talk about those in a minute. But this is the, the clue from Matthew, Jesus fits that pattern. And as we come to the end here of Jesus' earthly ministry, uh, Matthew's going to do that more. He's going to come back to that again. He's going to make more allusions, more references to the the prophecies and and how Jesus, well, again, fits the pattern. Uh, Matthew says this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Actually, he um, uh, paraphrases two different prophets. One of them is the prophet Isaiah. Look at Isaiah chapter 62, verse 11. Isaiah 62:11. The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to daughter Zion, see, your Savior comes. Now, how's that different? You start reading in verse 5, and I'm going to read from Isaiah 62, 11, and, and, and let's see the difference. Say to daughter Zion, see, your King comes to you, Matthew says. Isaiah says, see, your Savior comes to you. Um. I think that's intentional and it's purposeful, and we'll talk about why in in just a minute. Isaiah 62 is is one of the um, passages of Scripture. It's loaded with significance. It is focused, dead set on the promised deliverer that God said He was going to send. All the way through the Hebrew Scriptures, starting in from the very beginning, God promised that he was going to send a deliverer. He was going to send a warrior, a savior, a king who's going to uh, deliver the people, Israel, these Jews that are, are uh, they're waiting for this promised deliverer, warrior, savior, king to come. And, he, and Jesus, Matthew argues, Jesus fits the pattern. This one to come is going to be the king. He's going to be the ruler of the world. He's going to usher in an era of great peace and prosperity. He's going to judge all of God's enemies and Israel's enemies. And the Israelites are happy because they're the same person. And God's going to judge all the enemies, and he's going to bless all the righteous people, and there's going to be peace and prosperity through this warrior, savior, deliverer, king that, that God promised. And and this particular generation is thinking in particular, it's time, it's time, oh please, it's time for God's king to come and he's gonna deliver us from the Romans because the Romans have been occupying Jerusalem for a long time and we want God's king to come and push the Romans into the sea. That's what they're hoping for. And (laughs) they're not thinking very much about their own spiritual condition in fact, they, they think we don't worship idols like everybody else does, so we kind of deserve the king to come. I mean, it's time we deserve him to come because we're pretty upstanding people. We, if, any, if any generation uh, deserved God's king to come, it's us, and they're ready for him to come. In 1937, Disney released their, their uh, movie, the cartoon Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. There's a scene in that movie where Snow White sings to the seven Dwarves. Uh, in their lodge, she sings, Someday my prince will come, someday we'll meet again, and away to his castle we will go, to be happy forever I know. And the dwarves cry, because of this beautiful song and her great hope, that the great prince is going to come and fill her heart and take her to be forever in his palace. Not too dissimilar from what the Jews are, are hoping for the prince to come. Now, if Disney cartoons are not your thing, I have another picture to tell you about the great hope of Western New Yorkers. Some of you realize that, uh, uh, remember I grew up in Western New York, we were not rabid football fans, but we spent, uh, about, uh, everyone around us spent their time cheering for the Buffalo Bills. And the poor Buffalo Bills Disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. But now, now in Buffalo, there is the great hope. Josh Allen is, has emerged and the owner of the Bills have bet $21 million that he is our great hope. And he's going to lead the team to the championship that we have been longing for, deserving for, I mean, it's Buffalo, right? For so many years, here comes Josh Allen, our prince. This afternoon, the citizens of the great city of Pittsburgh are hoping to undo the dreams of the residents of western New York. But here he is. He's the guy. Here comes Jesus. He's the guy. Now, let's let's pause for a minute and think about this. Most people, most people actually have in their mind some sort of savior. Some sort of... um, There is something out there that's gonna make me happy, that's finally gonna satisfy me. It's a person, it's an achievement, it's a possession. There's something out there. I know that there's something out there that's gonna finally bring me satisfaction. Do you know what your great hope is? Maybe it's yourself, something you're gonna do. You have a default great hope. Uh, For some people, it's their relationship. Like Snow White, someday they're gonna meet their prince and they're gonna get married and they're gonna be happy forever until you find out that the prince is not as prince as you thought and then you gotta spend the rest of your life nagging, manipulating, cajoling them into being the perfect prince for you, right? Maybe it's your perfect job. There's a job out there that once I get it, it's gonna satisfy me and I'm gonna be happy. Or uh, maybe it's, it's more money. The sheets that is on 741, uh, uh, just on the edge of Millersville, there here, uh, is uh, we learned this a couple years ago. The uh, highest selling sheets that they no sheets sells more soda or drinks than that sheets does in Pennsylvania. That sheets is, thank you for the Penn Manor High School. Students. Anyway, so uh, uh, that sheet's in the lobby of that sheets. There are two machines right next to each other. There's an ATM, and right next to it is the lottery, automatic lottery machine. And I have stood there watching people get cash from one machine and put it into the other one, because they're hoping to turn that $20 bill that comes out of the ATM into $1,000, $10,000, $100,000, $1 a million, because. When I have a million dollars, then I will be happy. I will be satisfied. The Bible's familiar with people like this, or the hope that people have had. The Bible talks to us about this, about this temptation that we all have. There's a woman in Genesis chapter 29, her story is told. Her name is Leah. And Leah uh, was most unfortunate in that she had a younger sister who was beautiful, much more beautiful than Leah. And what's it like to have a charming, perfect little sister. It's annoying. A guy comes into their life, his name is Jacob, and uh, he loves Leah's little sister and not her. He makes arrangements to marry the little sister, his father, her father, their father, tricks him, though, into marrying Leah first, and then a week later, uh, he uh, he gets to marry the younger sister. Two wives. Can you imagine this? Her whole life, she's had this younger sister who's um, a beauty, and then there's her. And you would would hope that marriage would be the time that you'd get out of that house and be out of that situation. And now she's in a marriage where she's co-wife with her younger sister. Leah's great hope is that she's going to win the love of her husband, and the way she's going to win her lo- the love of her husband is by having children. And the Bible tells us she starts having son, 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 and they they uh, are born, and she says, "Now my husband will love me. Now my husband will love me. Oh, surely my husband will love me now." She's so desperate. The love of her husband is what's going to satisfy her. It's what's going to fulfill her. Some of you know who Leah's husband was and you want to pull her aside and say, Leah, he ain't worth it, ha! but this is her hope. Or there was a moment in the life of the apostle Paul where he was very focused on troubles that he had. And Second Corinthians chapter 12 tells us about it. He had some sort of thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was, some sort of medical malady, we think. And he prayed and he prayed and he prayed that God would take it away because that's what he thought his most important need was. God, I, I need this relief from this physical malady. The Bible is not unaware of the, the temptation that all of us have to place our hope in something. I wonder if you know what you are by default placing your hope in. it would be a good conversation at the dinner table today or something good to talk about with your accountability partner or maybe in your growth group. What is it that, that we are tempted to place our hope in? Now I mentioned there are two prophets. There's Isaiah 62 and then the second prophet that, that, Isaiah, that Matthew is quoting here is from Zechariah. Zechariah chapter nine. Um, Zechariah is a good prophet to think about at this time because, uh, well, we don't pay much attention to Zechariah, but Zechariah thought a lot about the city of Jerusalem and a lot about the deliverer to come. And actually, there's maybe a reference to Zechariah already. In Zechariah 14, he talks about how the great deliverer is going to set his foot on the Mount of Olives. And Matthew mentions the Mount of Olives, but look at Zechariah 9.9. Here's another quotation from Zechariah. Uh, the Hebrew scripture, Zechariah nine Is it going to show up maybe for us? It's not there? Oh, well, you know what it says? It says, verse five, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a dog. Actually, I'll read it to you. It should be on the screen. That was my fault. I'll read Zechariah nine. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The king's coming. The king is coming and he's going to come on a donkey. The one riding the donkey is king. It seems like Jesus is is deliberately acting this out. He's deliberately going into the city under these circumstances, riding this colt. He, he's acting this out on purpose, and the people are ready, and they welcome him as king. This is how you greet a king. They throw their garments on the colt to act as a saddle. Now, there are some people who have made fun of Matthew because it's, it, Matthew seems to say that they threw their garments on the, the donkey and the colt, and Jesus sat on them. <laughs> As if Jesus is astride the two animals, uh, and they make fun of Matthew for that. But actually, if your translation says they threw the garments and Jesus sat on them, the "them" is probably a reference to the garments, not a reference to both animals. So don't—I mean, Jesus is not. So one, he's riding the colt, and the donkey—donkeys come along uh, to to calm her uh, uh, un, unbroken son. Probably how that, what's going on. Well, they throw the garments on for a saddle. They throw the garments into the road and palm branches they put in the road. uh, This is the ancient equivalent of rolling out the red carpet. We're rolling out the red carpet because here comes the king and they greet him. They greet him just as you would a king coming, quoting from Psalm 118, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. They're, they're, They're celebrating. Here comes the king we want. Maybe not everybody though, Uh, uh, you notice that it's odd. Verse 10, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. Uh, That word stirred, stirred is weak sauce for this word. It, it, uh, It should be translated shaken. It's an earthquake word. In Matthew chapter 2, when the wise men come to Jerusalem looking for the one who'd been born king of the Jews, the text says that the whole city was a flutter. The whole city was disturbed. Now they're shaken. On Good Friday, the ground is literally going to shake, and it's going to shake again on Sunday morning, a resurrection too. There's a lot of shaking going on in this passage. The city's stirred. Some people say, who is this? Uh, they might have heard of Jesus. Maybe this is the question, though. What kind of guy is this? Who who is this person? Maybe there's some people who are just really out of the loop. Uh, In a few weeks, I think it's October 16th, will be the Millersville Parade. And thousands of people will come to Millersville, and they'll sit on uh, George Street, and they'll watch the uh, Millersville University, uh, Millersville uh, Borough Parade. And if you were at my house... You it would be possible for you to have nothing going on to, to not know anything about it except maybe you'll hear the calliope from here. But but uh, uh the parade could happen, and you won't have any any idea of, of what's going on. And and maybe there's people who who are, what's what's going on? What is going on here? What's this sound? Who is this? And the crowds give an answer, the crowds that are with Jesus give an answer that is. Accurate but not complete, they say, this is Jesus the prophet. It's, it's, not, it's missing something. Their answer is missing something. It's missing something just like they missed something about the donkey. They missed something about the significance of the donkey. Let's think about that. We'll move on. Secondly, we're going to talk about the Savior that God supplied, the Savior that God supplied. Here's the contrast. You're supposed to think about this. This is the contrast. How does the king come? How does the one they roll out the red carpet come? He comes on a donkey, a donkey? Gentle, lowly, humble donkey. How are are warriors supposed to enter a city? On a war horse, on a stallion with trumpets and soldiers, and here comes Jesus on a cold. Half tempted to wonder if his feet hit the ground as he was moving along, his short little donkey, right? They don't get it. The people don't get it. They don't get that Jesus did not come to make war on their enemies. And actually, what they're going to think in the next few days is that Jesus has come to make war on them. He's, he's going to go into their beautiful temple that they love so much, this huge uh, testament to their fidelity to God, and he, Jesus is going to condemn what goes on in that temple. He's going to, there's another parable that Jesus is going to act out. He's going to curse a fig tree because it's a tree that's supposed to be producing figs and it's not producing anything. And he's going to curse it. And and the the tree reminds everyone, it's supposed to remind everybody of this nation at this point in time, they're fruitless, cursed. He's going to give a blistering criticism of their spiritual leaders. He's going to give an extensive lesson on how their city is going to be destroyed. And, And what's going to happen is that EVEN SOME OF THESE HERE WHO ARE CELEBRATING, WELL, EVERYONE IS GOING TO TURN ON HIM. AND HIS CLOSEST FOLLOWERS ARE GOING TO DESERT HIM. THE CITY THAT THOUGHT THAT JESUS WAS GOING TO KICK OUT THE ROMANS ARE GOING TO, IN ANGER, TURN JESUS OVER TO THE ROMANS SO THAT THEY CAN KILL HIM. AND Pilate's GOING TO GIVE THEM A CHOICE. THIS IS A TRADITION, A DAY OF CLEMENCY, FESTIVAL TIME, You can have a choice. I will pardon one criminal in the prison who is slated for execution. One criminal. Which one do you want? You can have, Pilate says to the crowd, Jesus, or you can have this man named Barabbas. Jesus came to the attention of the Romans because the Jews, he was not the king that they were hoping, and he was gentle and lowly. And he tur- they turned him over to Pilate. That's how Pilate learned about Jesus, because he's too gentle, too low- lowly. How did Barabbas come to the attention of the Romans? Barabbas came to the attention of the Romans because he's a criminal, a um, violent criminal who would not be uh, displeased to see some Roman soldiers get killed. <laughs> Barabbas is not the sort of guy that you would throw a parade for. Barabbas is not the sort of guy you would put on a donkey and yell, Hosanna to the son of David. But when it came down to it, these Jews in Jerusalem, they did not choose Jesus. They chose Barabbas. That's who they wanted. They want the violent insurrectionists. They don't want Jesus. What these people do not realize is that the Romans are not their biggest problem. Their biggest problem And Jesus told them, is their own spiritual condition before God. This is a passage that reminds us, among other things, that what you think your greatest need is, is often not what you really need. What you think you really need is not often what you actually need. Think about Leah. She thought she needed the love of her husband. And, and she came to some peace in her life in the book of Genesis when her fourth son is born. She names him Judah and she says, I will praise the Lord. I mean, I'm, not, I'm not after the love of my husband. I, I, will, I will praise the Lord. Paul thought that what he really needed at the moment was healing. He thought he needed the thorn in the flesh to be gone. And what he actually needed, and God told him, was he actually needed to know God's sufficient grace. That in our weakness, God does some of his best work because of his sufficient grace. There is a difference between what you think you need and what God knows you need. Do you know the difference? Can you tell the difference in your life? Probably uh, in times of trouble, you have an immediate answer. Do you know what you need? You, you, I, if, if, if a crisis comes and hits your life, I know what I need. And, and uh, there probably are pressing concerns, but you know, there's something underneath, something underneath for you to learn, for you to know that God wants you to know. <laughs> you know this medically, right? If you're having chest pain, your immediate need is to call 911 and go to the hospital. Right? But your doctor's going to have a conversation with you after you go to the hospital about some deeper issues in your life. God wants to have a conversation in you, with you about some deeper issues in your life. What do you do about that? Well, knowing this, knowing that there's a difference often between what I think I need and what I actually need, changes the way I pray. I may have mentioned this to you before, but look at Matthew 7, verses 9 through 11. It's going to show up on the screen here. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good good gifts to those who ask him?" So contrast, son asks for bread, you don't give him stone. If he asks for fish, you don't give him a snake. It occurred to me one day that I was reading this passage that sometimes, that I pray not for bread and fish, but I actually ask God to give me stones and snakes. I'm just not smart enough to tell the difference. So pray with the knowledge that you need God sometimes to not answer what you ask for just as much as you need him to answer what you ask for. Sometimes my most eloquent praying consists of one word, help. Maybe you need a a, a good friend to help you think about this, these issues. The difference between what you think you need and what you actually need. Someone who's honest enough to tell you the truth. They don't need a warrior to push the Romans into the sea. What they need is a savior who's humble enough to die for them. That's actually what Paul brings out in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus Christ, humble to his father's will, obedient to death, even death, on a cross. You might be tempted to think this week that things are out of control. This week in Jesus' life, the things are out of control. They're not out of control. Jesus knows about the donkey, he's planning for the donkey, he's got everything, everything's under control. A foreign power is occupying Jerusalem, that's true, but worse hanging over these people is the wrath of God. Not just them, but all of us. And Jesus died as the great sin bearer, the great wrath averter. Again, they they don't need a warrior to drive the Romans into the sea. They need a savior who is humble enough to die for them. You notice this here, even before you knew it, even before you knew you needed a savior, God had provided one. And now the question is will you continue to trust him with whatever else it is you think you need what what might god be doing already in your life right now to meet the needs that you don't even know you have we're going to spend the next several weeks watching these people fall apart under the weight of their expectations and their own desires and their own disappointment with jesus It's going to lead to their ruin. It's going to lead to the destruction of their city that they love so much. It's going to be a tragedy. But it's a tragedy that God has planned to give us the Savior that we need. It's the Lord's doing. It's a marvel. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we do thank you for your great kindness to us through the Lord Jesus. He's the one who came to jerusalem and had the power to to cast the the, throw the romans into the sea and yet he came to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins lord we exalt in this truth that jesus is the savior who died on the cross for our sins and that there's life and forgiveness in him help us now we pray to remember that since you have given us your son, it's it's evidence, it's proof positive that we can trust you with all of the other calamities and troubles that come into our lives. Lord, uh, help us not to walk in folly like these um, men and women in this passage of scripture who rejected Jesus because he wasn't what they thought they wanted save us from that because lord you know the temptation that we have to turn to things and trust in them for help and hope help us to turn from that and look to you you who are the great god you who through your son rescues us help us we pray in christ's name amen